Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The climate emergency. It's in the headlines every day. Extreme weather is increasingly present in our lives. And after the recent climate summit, COP27, the stakes for humanity and the planet are clearer than ever. So, what can we do to course correct our future? What can business at large do differently? And how can your industry work together to that end? That's why I'm so excited to share my discussion with one of the world's leading authorities on climate action and regenerative business practices. He'll explain why the future isn't hopeless and how, by working with nature rather than against it, a vibrant future is possible for all of us. So where do we start? What actions can we take that will make all the difference? Let's find out right now. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and today I'm speaking with Paul Hawken, whose decades of thought leadership, writing, and collaboration with leading brands has laid the groundwork for the critical global shift towards a regenerative economy. And we'll be discussing how together we make the critical transition by following the actionable roadmap laid out in his new book, Regeneration. Paul, welcome to Lead with We. Thank you so much. I love the term. I love it. Um, I can't even tell you how much it means to me because when I did Drawdown and also Regeneration and worked with you know, big community of researchers and scholars and advisors, I said, you know, this is we talking to we, as opposed to, you know, sage on the stage talking, and I know you don't listen up. It's the other way around, which is we're community. We know a lot together. We love to work together. Let's share together. Let's, you know, and that's it. So when I said leave with we, I said, oh, yeah. You know, I really appreciate you saying that because I think a lot of the stress or tension around what we're going to talk about today comes from this sort of false separation, this binary idea where it's me against you, us versus them, male versus female. Would you say that's fair? More than fair. I think that what has crept into our politics, into our economics, into our beliefs, our cultural beliefs, uh, and into the climate world as a whole, very much so, is othering. And we're othering each other. That's racism, that's anti-Semitism, that is obviously the Me Too movement and sexism. But it's also the climate movement, you know, which is basically using words like we're going to fight, tackle, combat, it's a battle, we're going to mitigate, you know, nobody... Simon wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to mitigate. They don't even know what it means. Right. And um, so what we have done in our languaging about climate is about really global warming, actually. But what we've done is separate human beings from it as if 
uh, it was out there somewhere and we're, our job is to fix it and there's no it because the way we're thinking about it is the problem itself. It's absolutely true. I mean, this idea that we're somehow separate from each other and separate from the natural world is a fiction that I don't know how we manifested and maintained for so long. But I want to step back for a second. And, you know, you've been a thought leader out front inspiring folks for so many decades now. But I'm often intrigued by where did your journey begin? Like as someone who's a leader today, I know that I I was doing some reading and way back when Mitsokushi was that something that informed way back when in your day, you know, this sort of Japanese thinking, the relationship to the environment and so on? Like, where did your journey begin? My journey began outside when I was four, four or five years old, six years old. And uh, in my house, uh, it wasn't safe. I mean, you know, boo-hoo-hoo, I don't go into that. But I'm just saying I was not safe inside my home. And uh, so I went outdoors. As far as 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 much as I could, as often as I could, I went outside. And here's the the interesting thing about that: if you're three, four, or five years old, you can master the inside of a house in a couple hours. The light switches, the refrigerator. If you have a TV, turn it off and on. Whatever. I mean, you're done. You know, the, if you go outside, which I did, and sat outside, walked outside, you don't know what's going on. And you don't know the names of things. You don't know who's making that sound. You lift up a rock and things are crawling away. There's, you know, what they are, where they're going. You know, there are snakes outside, you know, like, what is that snake? And where is it going? Where does it live? You know, it it goes on and on and on. So what developed in me, uh, Simon, was curiosity. Like, Like, you go outside and you don't know anything. You know, there's leaf. What is it? What kind of tree is it? What are those berries on the tree? Are they good? Or are they poisonous? You know, all that sort of stuff. And for me, you know, you could spend t- 10 lifetimes outside and not understand what's going on, but you can study it. You can, you know, embrace it. And I always felt safe outside. I think, you know, feeling safe outside is an, an idea that we've lost. I think sometimes we huddle together in fear in cities. And as you say, we other each other. And, and they're all symptoms of a larger fear-based mentality, which works against an inclusive idea, which is so critical to what we're talking about today and, and your new book, Regeneration, and so on. But like from that beginning, you then went on to really commit your life to it. You, you, know, you wrote The Ecology of Commerce that you know, business leaders like Ray Anderson said was like a spear in the chest and really transformed their business and by extension, their industry, natural capitalism. You know, you founded Project Drawdown, which is a nonprofit that really researches global warming. Plus you've been an entrepreneur yourself. You know, you've got Smith and Hawkins, you've had, you know, wholesale food company, you've had one son. So, you know, you're uniquely positioned at the intersection of all of these different sort of turning points or sort of thought leadership streams in and around the impact of humanity on the planet. We've now reached a unique moment in time where much like the IPCC report declared, it's code red for humanity, where we're at a point of crisis and we're one of two responses. We can either show up meaningfully, collectively, uh, inclusively, or we can sort of, you know, capitulate in some ways and throw our hands up and point, point at each other and blame each other. Now, how would you characterize this moment through the lens of the last five decades that you live? You know, is it our last and only attempt to course correct before things are irrevocable? Or do you feel like this is actually a positive turning point 
and we can build onto something, you know, build on something very positive that's already underway? That's a really good question. I mean, there's two things that are going back 50 years and what I would call the, in the last few weeks, the release of the sixth assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, Code Red, occurring at a time when the Northern Hemisphere was basically on fire, Siberia, Greece, Spain, Canada, United States, California, and interestingly, fires in many cases that we couldn't put out. In other words, and when I was a lad, you know, I went to high school in the Sierra Nevadas here in California, and we, we would be called, you know, with fires, you know, to go out and work the fire lines, you know. And people know what they're doing and no one liked it, but you knew what you're doing. You never had the sense that this fire could get out of control. You, you, had a, how to, you knew how to ring fence it, how to you know, control all that sort of stuff. Now it's so dry and the winds are so different than they were when I was growing up. The, the wind is different. I, people don't talk about that enough, you know. And like you, you, what you're trying to do is, is make sure you don't get killed. <laughs> And what you're trying to do is make sure that you can save as much as you can save down, you know, downwind. So it's a very different uh, regime, ecological regime we are in today than we are, say, 50 years ago or 30 years ago and so forth. I think what happened in the last 50 years, let's say, is that that's when global warming came into the public sphere. Now, it was talked about, it was reported, there was news commentary about it. And basically, all the way up until today, um, a very small group of people have known about it, noted it, written about it, talked about it, and have tried, and effectively, by the way, to make, take action. But it's a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of humankind. And right now, after 50 years of being in the public sphere, global warming, that is, and the dangers that were predicted then and 10 years ago, 20 years, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I mean, the predictions were not only right, but things were happening sooner than those predictions, not later. That even all that's happening, 98 to 99% of humanity is disengaged and not doing anything about it. And so my question isn't to point fingers and blame people and so forth, uh, is to step back and say, wow, what was that massive failure of communication? What did it originate from? And it goes right back to what you brought out about, you know, othering, about the separation and so forth. The language that was used was about just numbed people. At first, it was about threat and fear. And the science justifies that, by the way, so it's not irrational. But there was like threat and fear. And then when activists took a hold of it and said, look at the science and say, then there was blame and shame and finger pointing, you know, which is, and then polar bears and calving glaciers, you know. I mean, is imagery to somehow startle us in such a way that we did something and the fact is, we know from neuroscience and brain 101, <laughs> it doesn't work. And it just turns people off. They go numb. And so you have about, like I say, 40 to 50, no one knows exactly a percent of the world that actually understands that global warming is anthropogenic, but does nothing about it. They're sympathetic 
You know, if they watch a documentary on Netflix, they think they've done something and so forth. And so that's what we have to address. How do we do that? How then do we communicate going forward? Uh, because it has to be different what, than what we've done in the past. And that's what regeneration is absolutely about. And I want to I want to get specific on that term regeneration, but it almost sounds like, and I agree with you that this crisis is in a sense a good thing because it's really captured our attention. It's almost like humanity is guilty of kicking the can down the road until there's a moment of urgency, and we saw that with the pandemic when we were facing a challenge larger than ourselves, and it was really something that everyone had to pay attention to. We mobilized in ways that were unimaginable before, and so arguably this point of tension or inflection that we're at is, is a good thing. And, and you characterize it now in terms of how we can end the climate crisis in one generation. And, you know, I really want to call out, this is Paul's new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And there's an urgency to that. And that is, informs the whole roadmap. So let's start at the beginning. What does regeneration mean? It's one of those buzzwords that you're hearing more and more out there. But, you know, just tease out some of the higher order themes within it, because I know it's a complicated idea. It is complicated and it's simple, both, you know, I mean, from my point of view. And the reason, I mean, I knew I was going to write this book five years ago, so this is not like trying to converge. And I'm seeing like you are, this word become very popular. And I, the reason I think it's becoming popular because regeneration is a burgeoning movement across the world. Um, most people think it applies to agriculture, not. It does really saliently and importantly apply to agriculture. It applies to everything, everything we do, everything we make, everything that we serve or get services that we get in return. Uh, applies to culture, applies to just all aspects of human behavior. Um, the definition I use for regeneration is putting life at the center of every act and decision. It's a very simple definition. And that is just an orientation, looking at what we do, what we think, what we um, buy, you know, um, uh, how we interact with each other, with the natural world, with the, the, the world of goods and services. And is that what we're doing? And what does that mean? Um, so for me, uh, regeneration is a word that actually has big arms. And the reason for that is um, sustainability was an interesting word, but I mean, I don't think it had big arms and no one knew exactly what it meant anyway. Like, when did you achieve sustainability? It's like, you know, is it a balance point? Is how do you measure it? I mean, who's to say all that sort of stuff is so ambiguous. Regeneration is a little different in the sense it's innate to being a human being. All 30 trillion of your cells right now are regenerating every nanosecond or we wouldn't be having this conversation. So every human being is regenerating. Furthermore, everything we do, not everything, but I mean, but basically what we do as living beings, we're a living being, we're a species, we're here on the planet, you know, walking around. I mean, we regenerate ourselves, you know, by breathing, our air, our water, our food, you know, some people can't. Uh, we do it with our children, we do it with our pets, we do it with our garden, we do it in how we care for others, we do it in our synagogue, our church, our temple, we're always doing that, we don't use that term. But life creates the conditions for life, and so what we are doing on a daily basis is trying to create the conditions for life. And what's happened is we have created inadvertently, mistakenly, um, 
an economic system that is the opposite. It's one that extracts life. It's extractive economy. And so if you follow the breadcrumb trail back and anything you buy and any service you receive, you will find that it is extracting life from the living world, from the oceans, from the land, from the forest, from the soil, and from people, by the way. And, um, and so what we're looking at is basically an economy that is not about stealing the future. When you take life, you are degenerating. That's what degeneration is, you know? And so we're stealing the future from our children and their children and generations to come. And so this, I think, is this is an inflection point. This is the point where we go, got it, whoa, you know, let's do a 180. And we can have a prosperous economy with the GDP that's about healing the future instead of stealing it. You know, before I shift to the positive focus of your plan in regeneration, I want to kind of honor the cynics one, with one more question, which is, you know, I see certain forces working against this shift, whether it's legacy industries like energy and so on, where a few well-organized players can outcompete with a lot of disparate nonprofits and social enterprises and well-intended companies. I see a large majority of people in the global south, shall we say, where they want their day at the banquet table of capitalism. They want their consumer goods. They want their, their cars, their flat screens, God knows what. And then there are the vast majority who live on under $10 a day for whom fixing the world is a luxury they can't even entertain. They're just trying to survive or get clean water. So, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying, just those three forces, how do we overcome the inertia of that? Some of it will be very sort of proactive and intentional on the part of legacy brands, some of it will just be distraction by survival in the case of others. How do we work against that? How do we compete with that? Well, it's an interesting question uh, in terms of its pronoun. Because uh, you use we. And actually, we can also be a burden. In other words, how do we, you know, basically address, you know, perfidy, corruption, you know, banality. <laughs> like, and when, when I finished the book, Regeneration, I hired a decolonization editor. Because in our language, if you're uh, white, and especially if you're a white male, you will say things with great intention, good intention. And you won't realize that from the point of view of a brown, black, or indigenous person, they're looking and going, really? You know, because embedded and stitched into those sentences, paragraphs, or words is privilege, you know, and settler mentality, and colonist mentality, and dominant mentality, and so forth. We don't see it, you know, we're born into it, okay? And so it was so interesting. And then, so he did that. Uh, um, Kyle White, University of Michigan, citizen Potawatomi, uh, Native American, and on the very first page, um, I used that editorial we, you know, we are facing, you know, I don't know whether, you know, the greatest crisis civilization has ever, blah, 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 blah. Okay, we, 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 we. And, he, and he circled it and he put it in the margin notes. He said, who is we? 
Good question. Good question. You don't speak for me. You don't speak for my culture. And so speak for sure, you know, but don't, don't we us in this. So, I mean, it runs counter to what you're saying, but I don't think so. What you're saying is about community, you know, soil is a community. I mean, so you don't put poison on it. To, you know, if you want healthy plants, you have healthy soil. You know, you don't put poison in it, whether pesticides or herbicides or anything else. And so the same thing, and we talk about these forces, these the inertia, the word you used, you know, of these things. We really have to step back and and understand that basically all solutions are regional or local, you know, in a sense. And um, and we as individuals and in terms of agency, uh, we can also influence, we, you know, we can influence. And one of the wonderful things that's happened, 350.org was started by Bill McKibben, um, really was responsible more than any other organization for stopping the Keystone Pipeline from the tar sands oil to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, the refineries there. And then uh, James Hamming, who is one of the co-leaders now and so forth, has started a campaign which is so elegant, which is he's going after the creatives who are doing the basically greenwashing ads for the fossil fuel companies. You know, oh, natural gas is a clean energy, it's a transition fuel, or, or BP saying, oh, we understand the problem, we want to be part of the solution, you know, and then assigning new oil leases, you know. And, and he's going after the agencies and the companies that use those agencies and saying, look, at, you're using agencies that are basically, like I said earlier about banking and finance, that are just, you know, that are advertising for companies that don't get it and are destroying the world as we know it. And so those agencies, what are they going to do, you know, if they have, if they have clients leaving them because they're advertising for Exxon and Chevron and BP, et cetera. Oh, and they have six other clients who are going, you know. <clears throat> so again, we have these kind of occupant uh, puncture points, you know, in society that we can identify and use our our sort of moral weight, you know, of what's going on, which you talked about earlier about this inflection point, uh, to say, really, are you going to continue to do this? Because if you're not, if you are, it doesn't make any sense, and we're going to make we're going to publicize this, you know, just like. And so I do feel like, the, the, and I, I don't want to go into long here, but I mean, just think, the, and maybe we should go back to this because 4.3 billion people do live on less than $10 a day. And they are crucial, crucial to our understanding and solving uh, the crisis uh, of global warming. You know, we keep touching on the role of narrative here or storytelling, you know, all the meaning that's implicit within certain language we've used and how we need to use new language or reframe that language to make us work together in new ways. And I think one of the big missing puzzles in all of this, you know, we've got the stakes, we've got an existential crisis, we've got the stakeholders, even the investor class arguably at the table now. But I think what is so powerful about the book Regeneration that you put together and, and the, the, the expansive plan you laid out is it's a new narrative for business, the private sector, but even more broadly, you know, the ecosystems, equity across the board. You know, when you think about this, like how would you characterize the narrative that a CEO, that it's necessary marketers need to lead, that, you know, that 
any organization on behalf of all its stakeholders need to lean into right now? How would you characterize that narrative, that story, so that you can engage the hearts and minds, so that you can leverage the power of storytelling? We're all still human beings sitting around campfires telling stories. So what must that story be like to really overcome a lot of those things you just pointed to? I think, I think there's CEOs of some of the largest, I know there are, of some of the very, very largest companies in the world who are asking that same question. And the reason they're asking the question, Simon, is because I think pretty much up until now, sustainability or ESG was really about renewing your social license. You know, in other words, you know, values change and perceptions change and what people, consumers think are, is acceptable or unacceptable keeps changing and you keep renewing your license, you know, and say, oh, we don't do this anymore. Oh, we don't, oh we're doing this or we're, we're committing, you know, to net zero by 2050. How are we going to get there? We have no idea, but we're committing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, but I have met these CEOs and I, they are of the largest companies. And the difference today is that they get it. I don't mean they get it intellectually. I think they do. They get it emotionally. They get it as fathers, as uncles, uh, as brothers, as sisters, uh, as community members, as um, members of, of churches, synagogues, temples. You know, I mean, you see it in their eyes. It's completely different. And then they're like, it's an oh my gosh moment, you know, and it's like, whoa. And here I am at the helm of one of the biggest companies in the world that, you know, arguably serves people with what they need. You know, it could be food, it could be other things and so forth. I mean, in, in, and how, what do we do? I think it's really powerful what you're saying. And I think the pandemic was a sort of like, Oh, just a, a dramatic dry run in that in the sense that when we saw the people we care about most in our lives directly affected, we snapped out of what little bubble we weren't even aware that we were in. And we sort of leaned into our role within the community because our community was thrown front and center in front of our eyes. And I think we need to embrace community to then reawaken our role within that community. And I know you've, you've led this incredible work inside, you know, the world's largest companies like Walmart, Nestle, and so on not specific to them, but more broadly, what would you say the biggest obstacles are in business for large legacy industries that really shape people's lives all around the world? What are the biggest obstacles in the way? And what are the key steps through your line of sight over decades now are the key steps that make all the difference in their transformation? Well, I mean, the biggest uh, obstacle always is uh, Wall Street. That is uh, stock... <laughs> Valuation, in other words, if the valuation of the company doesn't go up, CEOs failed. Um, so growth is the biggest obstacle. And growth itself, you know, is just a question of what's growing, not growth itself. We arguably, once we stop growing physically, you know, in our 20s, you know, 20, 19, 18, whatever, you know, I mean, we hope we continue to grow, but we don't grow in size. We grow in depth and complexity and understanding and compassion and you know, I mean, that, that, that is our hope, you know, that as human beings, we never stop growing. And I think the same thing exists for the economy as a whole right now, which is what's going to grow and why, and is it growing in such a way that creates more life? And here I would go back to an essay that's in the book by Lila June, who's Dene Navajo and Cherokee. Uh, and she wrote an essay called The Forest is Farm and recounted, you know, the 
um, the studies that showed that 3,000 years ago on the East Coast, you know, uh, First Nation peoples moved into forests and the forests completely changed uh, from what they were to new regimes and the hickory nuts and butternuts and, and chestnuts and plants, you know, the annuals and perennials and so forth. And in other words, they changed these forests into farms, that is to say, um, food producing, <laughs> you know, silviculture. Um, and so when the colonists and settlers came in, you know, they just thought, oh my God, these forests are so well tended, they're so beautiful. This is like the, you know, the virgin, you know, Adam and Eve forest. No, it wasn't. These are forests that were co-created with human beings. And what's interesting about the essay is she talks about these people and First Nations and Indigenous people as a whole in a very interesting way. And that is that these were these are human beings acting as keystone species. Now, a keystone species is a species, it can be a bee, a hummingbird, it can be a wolf, you know, it can be a beaver, you know. What is common to those four very different, you know, uh, insects, you know, and and species, uh, and that is that in their daily life, how they live their life in their region, in their ecosystem, creates more life for other life forms. That's what the, and it's like amazing, you know, and, and when you remove them, like the wolf from Yellowstone and other things, when you remove them, you see a collapse of the ecosystems. So we know it's true both ways. So really what regeneration is about well, why not all of us become a, all of us become a keystone species? Let's become a keystone species, so that how we live our life, you know, it actually creates more life now and into the future. And then the question is, how do we do it? What does it mean? What does it mean in terms of materials? How do we relate to each other? You know, what do we buy? How do we buy it? You know, do we really make the take the boreal forest and make cardboard boxes for Amazon? Is that a really good idea or? How about plush toilet paper for Procter & Gamble out of virgin trees in the boreal forest, which is the largest stock of carbon on terrestrial systems in the world? You know, it's like toilet paper? Uh, not a really good idea. And <laughs> so um, without, you know, finger pointing and, and shaming, I'm just saying is like we, when, once you see that and understand that and understand that, that does bring, this can bring us back to life, you know, and going back to the 4.3 billion people who are poor, again, is that when you look at the climate solutions, we look at what we know how to do right now and so forth. I mean, this creates tremendous benefits for people who future existential threat, they are worried about existential threat the moment they wake up in the morning in terms of food, food security, just security overall, education for their children, warmth, heat, housing, clothing, transfer. I mean, every day they wake up and they are in basically in stress about those things. And so it's not like, oh, well, the wealthy, the privileged should help the poor, you know, the poor. I don't mean that at all. I mean, these, the, the, the poor, poor do not want to be, poverty does not want to be fixed. Poverty wants to fix itself. They have pride, they have dignity. And when you look at these solutions of regenerating life on earth, it provides meaning to people and ways and the means for them to change their lives, improve their lives and increase their sense again of purpose and dignity. And the one thing we know 
about the cause of depression, we can say, oh, it's this and this and this and this. You go right to the core of the cause of depression, which is, I mean, epidemic in the world, is lack of purpose. You know, it's so funny because it's almost like those who've benefited from the ways that things are right now have gone straight from sort of apathy about the issue to hopelessness. They skipped over embracing their own agency to drive change. So how do you correct for that? Like before I talk about the frameworks and concrete actions that all of us can take, how do you engage? I mean, on the one hand, you've got a group of people who are almost arguably incapable, but they're desperate to self-determine and get out of the, the situation they're in. On the other, you've got a large number of people around the world that are prosperous and so on, but they seem like they're either waiting for somebody else or they're pointing fingers or they've given up hope already. How do you elevate those two from where they are right now? Well, we don't. What we generation tries to do is connect what is, and it's called action and connection. And what I don't think most people understand is that tremendous work is being done in this area. The purpose of regeneration, the book, the book is a neurotransmitter, really. And uh, the last eight pages is called Action and Connection. And that's a wormhole to the website. The real purpose of the book is the website. It's not the website there to serve the book. Uh, I don't want to cut down a lot of forests and sell a lot of books in the world. You know, I mean, everybody has to read the book. Actually, then go straight to the website if they want to get things done. Um, the, when, when I did Drawdown, it was definitely, it had never been done before, the list of all the solutions that were extant in, in scaling. And if we continue to scale them at a certain rate, could we achieve Drawdown by 2050, which means could we reach that point in time where greenhouse gases peak and go down on a year to year basis? That was Drawdown. But that was what we could do, Brooke. And I knew regeneration is what we can do for sure and how to do it. And that's what's missing. Name them. So the website is the, the world's biggest, largest list and network of climate solutions and how to get them done on all levels of agency. You're an individual, you're a school child, you're an institution, you're a university, you're a city, you're a company, you are a church group, you are a province, you're a governor, whatever, it's at all levels of agency, who are the people who are just kicking butt out there and getting it done all over the world, how you can learn more, what to read, what podcast to listen to, I mean, uh, who are the bad actors, you know, which is like, come on, guys, stop this, you know, you're, like I said, making plush toilet paper out of the boil forest, really, who, whose idea was that, <laughs> like, <laughs> and, but, and, and so that, Really, you can go there and then find out what lights you up. You know, like I've always, it could be something you know how to do already and don't feel effective. It could be something you know, no, don't, don't know at all. You're so curious about it. I want to learn about this. And there you are. You have everything you, you, you could possibly want to learn about it and to access. It's just links everywhere. We, we're not saying we know, we're saying, we know, you're we, the big we, we do know so, so much. And our job in regeneration is to open that up. And we have climate action systems. You can form learning pods. We work with Damon Gamow at 2040 in Australia in terms of regenerator networks where you can connect with people themselves. I mean, so what we're trying to create 
is is something that is obvious, which is the way you heal a system is to connect more of it to itself. This is true about the immune system. We know this cold. We know it about ecosystem. The science is baked on that one, all right? We know it for social systems too, and economic systems and cultural systems and the earth system. So what regeneration is about is trying to help the world connect to itself, connect more to itself. And as my wife said, you know, after I said, okay, I'm doing another book, she said, really? I said, what's it about? I said, about how to get it done. She said, if you don't tell me how to get this done, I'm leaving you. And so I, <laughs> I said, got it. <laughs> it like, and so that's the part, that's the real icing, that's the delivery. That's what we're trying to deliver to people. The book is about enthralling them into the beautiful complexity and interconnection of the world. It's like, wow, you know. But, you know, okay, now you're, now you're there. Go over here to the website and you'll learn basically how to make a difference. I know Regeneration, your book, is incredibly optimistic. It lays out an actionable plan. But at the same time, I'd love you to sort of just share a final thought about, you know, a caution that if we don't engage with this, what does it mean for our future? And what does it mean for companies, large or small, that may find themselves on the wrong side of history as these, you know, as these chickens come home to roost, shall we say. So, you know, if you were to give people a little bit of a heads up about what's to come if they don't embrace or don't take a, play a role, what would you say? Well, either way, the, one way to look at it, it's kind of gallows humor, but <laughs> uh, this is the warmest summer in the history of humankind, recorded history, in the recorded history this summer. Uh, um, and this will be the coolest summer for the rest of your life. Wow. Okay. In other words, that is the inertial quality of global warming, and it's not a linear system. Okay. So we're dealing with that no matter what we do. It's locked in place. Let's get real. But we also know now, with a sixth assessment, by the way, but it was in there, but it was announced prior to it, that we used to be told and think, and the science showed us that if we reached a point where greenhouse gases leveled off in the atmosphere, that warming would continue for decades and centuries ahead, that not only would it not abate, but it would increase, even though there were no more the levels of greenhouse gases had peaked. Now we know, and they found out a fundamental error in their models, you know, <laughs> that actually as soon as they peak, that within a relatively short time, warming also peaks. And then as we draw down, that is sequester, bring carbon back home, that cooling begins. So now we have a goal that's reasonable in terms of time, in terms of three, you know, three or four decades, you know. And there's, we have in our book that we can achieve 100% renewable energy by 2042, and it's fairly straightforward. And we don't think it's Panglossian or even optimistic because the International Energy Agency, McKinsey, the World Bank, 
have predicted the growth of wind and solar and the rate at which costs would go down for 20 years, and they've been wrong every single year without exception. They've underestimated the rate of growth and they've underestimated the rate in which costs will go down. And um, so we just, we look at what's happened and use that as a way to uh, project going forward. So there is good news here. And at the same time, there is not good news if we think somebody else will do it. No one's coming to save us. We have been around long enough to see that the large institutions are high bound and frankly, most governments are corrupt, you know, overtly or subtly. Um, those are the people that go from the government to the conference of the parties and negotiate and all that sort of stuff. God bless them. I hope they make progress. You know, we need help from whatever, from wherever and whomever it can come. But to going back to action, what we need to do is go do, act, do. And if you think you're small, then welcome to the world. Of course you're small. I mean, <laughs> we always were. But we become big by what we do, what we embody, what we express, and who we are. And that is where action changes belief. Are you just Simon Mainwaring or are you of the podcast? Look at your agency and look what it might do. Just even one person, like you said, when I wrote Ecology of Commerce, if only Ray Anderson had read the book, that book was an amazing success uh, just because of that. So we don't know as individuals the manifestation, the ultimate impact of what we do. What we do know is if we want to come to life, let's make a meaning, a life that has meaning, okay? And you do that by addressing the offering that's in front of us, which is to regenerate life on earth. Paul, firstly, I want to thank you for devoting your life to this work. And more specifically, on behalf of everyone and also your wife, putting the book together that tells us how. And for those who can't see this, who are listening, I'm holding up Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And even more specifically, grab the book and then go to the courses at regeneration.org. Find that particular vehicle, community, organization, way of showing up that's going to be meaningful to you because that's ultimately healthy self-interest. You're going to find greater fulfillment in your own life. You feel like you're part of the solution. And I would encourage everyone and ask on a very personal level, please buy this book. Please ingest it. But also buy it for everyone else that in your sphere of influence that has some sort of lever of power. It might be your CEO, it might be a founder, it might be someone in charge of sustainability at your company, it might be everyone in your company. But to Paul's point, when we do this together, there is nothing we can't achieve and the roadmap is here. So please do that, not only for our future, but for yourselves as well. So Paul, thank you so much for today and just a pleasure to learn more from you. Thank you, Simon. And um, I would say the same to you, which is thank you for everything you're doing for your mind, for your heart, for your scope, and for your dedication to um, to each other, to you know our communities everywhere, known and unknown, and for generations who will never, ever, ever know anything about what we do, but will benefit by the actions that other people take right now, including ourselves. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. 
Make sure you subscribe to Lead With We on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and do share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also watch our episodes on YouTube at We First TV. And I'm excited to share that my new book, Lead With We, comes out November 9th and is available for pre-order now on Amazon, Google Books, and Barnes & Noble. So check it out. See you on the next episode, and until then, let's all lead with we.